Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host today, Margaret Kiljoy. I say it that way because there's other hosts now, and I'm very excited about that. But sometimes, apparently, we have the same voice, and so people think that we are each other. But we're not. We're different people. And you can tell because my name is Margaret Kiljoy, and Inman's name is not Margaret Kiljoy. It is instead Inman. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're going to talk about today Well, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. I'm really excited about it. We're going to be talking with the host of a podcast that you should probably be listening to if you're not already called Last Born in the Wilderness. And it's like the the smarter thinking version of this show. Um, And so we're going to talk about that. And first, here's a jingle from another show on the network, which is the network is Channel Zero Network, which is a network of anarchist podcasts. And here's a jingle. It's going down and you're invited what they selling we ain't buying there is no running there is no hiding there's only fighting or dying it's going down and you're invited for what they selling we ain't buying there is no running there is no hiding there's only fighting or dying it's going down it's a digital community center from anarchist anti-fascist autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to whatsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Okay, we're back. Okay, so if you could introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and then kind of maybe like introduce this this other podcast, this project that you do. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Patrick Farnsworth. Pronouns are he, him. Um, I'm the host of Last Born in the Wilderness. Um, it's a podcast I've been hosting for quite a long time now, and I I don't know how to describe it. Um, someone described it once as a podcast about death and dying, which sounds rather bleak. Um, mm-hmm. It's an interesting way to describe it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a it's a you know I certainly come from a, la- a radical leftist and anarchist, or as someone else has said about me, anarchist adjacent perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about collapse. I'm talking about the implications of global climate change, climate disruption, the so-called you know sixth mass extinction, Anthropocene, like these kind of big, heady, huge global subjects around you know extinction and mass extinction events and so on and. I kind of also explore the history of settler colonialism and issues around whiteness, or, or I should say, like white white supremacy. I talk about a whole bunch of stuff, and I think the point of it is to really get at the question of what are the roots of of these kind of broader biospheric crises that we're in the midst of. Mm-hmm. Why is it that human beings or the dominant culture of human beings that we are part of is producing a mass extinction event, and what is that? portend? What does that lead to? What can we expect to happen in the coming decades? Um, and kind of wrestling with really deep, deep, <laughs> I mean, deep in the sense emotionally and spiritually deep <laughs> question of, of like, what does extinction mean for our species? And yeah. um, how do we grapple with that? It's a, it's a big question. So yeah, that's more or less what the podcast is kind of addressing. Yeah, no, I, okay. So wait, with extinction, do you run into this thing Okay, well, no, first I'm going to ask you about your name. Then we're going to come back to extinction. 
Where did you get the sick name? It's such a sick name. It's obviously, as someone who like is part of a project called Strangers in the Tangled Wilderness and then has a show called Live Like the World is Dying, I'm clearly a fan of this like slightly long and poetic style of naming. But um, Last Born in the Wilderness is a sick name. I'm, I'm curious its background. Sure. Um, I mean, the name itself came. It's a funny origin story, really. When I came up with the name, I was homesick and... I didn't know what to call this thing. I didn't even know what I wanted to make, but I was thinking about what my father would call me because mm-hmm. uh, I'm the youngest of this large Mormon family, no mm-hmm. longer LDS, but grew up in this LDS family, LDS environment. He would call me his last born in the wilderness because being kind of, he's kind of a, a, a lovely but very quirky man who would have these very strange nicknames for his kids, including me being the youngest, being the quote, <laughs> last born in the wilderness, meaning... <laughs> He was paraphrasing from the Book of Mormon. There was okay. a, a verse in the Book of Mormon about this family going through the wilderness and something about being the last born in this wilderness of mine afflictions. Like it's really dramatic kind of oh, okay. Mormon scripture stuff. And it's it's uh-huh. weird. So I don't know. I guess I thought of my dad. I thought of that. I thought of my history. I thought of that this sounded like it could have multiple meanings and it, and it does because as I did the podcast more and more, I started to really think about the other layers of it of, okay, are we the last generation? Like, is yeah. this the end of this idea of wilderness? Wilderness itself is kind of an interesting idea and in the kind of colonialist like notion, the dualism of civilization versus wilderness. And that in mm-hmm. and of itself is a problematic idea. Like there's a lot of layers to it that I've discovered which is actually what I love about really cool names or titles of things is when you name something and you realize over time that it actually has other meanings that kind of come up and you're like, oh, that actually means this as well. I did not know yeah. that. So yeah, that's where it comes from. Okay. I really like that for a thousand reasons. One of the things that you talked about, like, yeah, like I've been reading more and more stuff that's critical of the idea of wilderness, right? Because you're creating mm-hmm. a an artificial distinction between like humans and everything else, right? As if mm-hmm. like... I mean, we're not capable of doing things that are not natural because we're like literally natural beings, right? Yeah, exactly. And and yeah, like the idea of like untouched wilderness as this very colonial concept where it's like mm-hmm. actually a lot of forests are managed by people and like where... And it, it gets mm-hmm. humans off the hook if we treat ourselves like we're bad, like inherently, right? Yeah, Because sure. like, like, oh, well, we're humans. So of course we clear cut and be like, well that's not true. Like, right. <laughs> a lot of people lived here for a very long time and then didn't clear cut everything. Right. They didn't, no. Okay. And then the other reason I like it, it's kind of the same background as strangers in the tangled wilderness. Oh, really? I was once when I was like a weird look at me, I'm so strange, uh, Google kid running around and, and pulling books out of the trash. I, I dumpstered the Christian science, holy book. I don't know what it's called. And I just started cutting it up to make new assemblages of words and things. Right. Mm. And one of the pieces that I cut out of it and then I like put on this piece of art I was making just said strangers in the tangled wilderness. And I really liked it. And so mm. I named my first zine I ever made like uh, 20 some years ago. Well, not the first scene, but the first zine that I like. I called strangers in the tangled wilderness because that's how I felt as like this like wanderer. Right. And then. Yeah. But since then, I've learned, I think I'm not a expert on on Christian science, uh, although I can claim my, my great grandmother was raised that way. And then she was like, this sucks. And then she just became a agnostic atheist pagan person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause she was cool. It was like a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. She applied to college and they, she got so mad that they asked her what her religion is that she wrote sun worshiper on the thing, which mm-hmm. is like, 
complicated, but like for a woman in the 1910s, I'm fucking into it. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the next line in it is strangers in a tangled wilderness, wanderers from the parent mind. And so it's using wilderness as a negative conception in, mm-hmm. I believe, in the traditional mm-hmm. thing. And so, yeah, it's like this interesting thing where like Christianity, like, okay, so this this last born in the wilderness seems to be implying this like negative conception of wilderness, which is yeah. this very like uh, a negative version of Christianity producing such a thing. I don't know. That's why yeah. that's what I've got. Yeah. I think, I think the wilderness all it's in, in scripture and Christian literature, whatever. It's like very much this. Indi- it's like if you're wandering the wilderness, you're not in a good place. You've kind of either been banished or God is like, leaving right. you alone, giving you distance to figure your shit out for a while. Like there's good things and bad things with that. But I, I think that the wilderness can, yeah, it, it, there is this implication in it of, of it being like our symbolic or whatever of it being not the best place to be in. You're not in paradise. That's for sure. You're right. not in the promised land. That's for sure. You're maybe on the way there, but you're not there. Right. Um. Yeah. And, and certainly like in that passage, if I remember, it's like, in the wilderness of mine afflictions, like it's very, <laughs> it's not, it's not, you know, it's not a good place to be, but they were on their way to the promised land, I guess in that scripture. Right. So, ah, uh, okay. So you're like the last one before we reach paradise or whatever. Only I guess. I don't know. Case, I don't like know. The last people who have a concept of wilderness and everyone else is going to live underground, growing their food in very controlled environments. Cause everything's hard. I guess so. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that certainly the, the world as we know it, the the world that you and I were born into is like kind of no longer here yeah. and we've entered into a new, a new earth, which is not one that is hospitable to human or <laughs> much of the more than human life, unfortunately. And it's going to get progressively more in, inhospitable. So being the last born is really, it's not a, it's all of us. It's not like, you know, you're not the last man on the earth or whatever, last person right. on the earth. Here. One of a generation right. uh, or several generations. That's really remembers what it was like before the climate was completely chaotic and everything was on fire Yeah, and everyone was coughing in your face with a plague. You know, yeah. that was a nice time. Remember that? That was yeah, cool. Totally. And, now, <laughs> and now we're in this new place or the seemingly novel place for us, at least of, of, of kind of amplifying crises. And it's, um, yeah. So anyway, sorry, that's rather bleak, but it, it's, it's a little bit of what I talk about, I guess, or bring up in the podcast. Yeah. Over our consents. No, no. Okay. Well, let's talk about coughing in people's faces with the plague. Um, <laughs> one of the topics that we wanted to talk about was kind of a, like a little bit of a, like where we're at with COVID and not mm. just the, like, Hey, there's a new wave coming and there's new or cure. And there's also like, you know, time for your yearly booster and there's the non-MRA, non, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Vaccine that just got approved and like all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. But, but more about, I want to kind of ask you about what you've learned through your work about the fact that we are living in this place where community care has been left to individuals and smaller organizations by and large with some larger institutions trying to do good while the like f- at least federal level care and things like that have largely abandoned us to uh, fend for ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's weird. Um, this has been a, 
disillusioning period. I think um, Mm -hmm. pandemic has been really rough for a lot of reasons. And I think I've talked about it a lot through a variety of lenses. I think there's like a baseline of trust that's been lost among myself and a lot of other people. Like I feel like to kind of continue to keep up precautions and to avoid catching COVID is really a difficult thing at this time. And it's, it's weird because there's been a normalization on such a broad level. And there's people on the left mm-hmm. who really have given up and don't really care about it anymore. And seemingly it, it sort of seems like we've kind of turned a corner. It feels like culturally, socially where it's kind of unacceptable to continue to care about it in this way. But I think if you are a leftist or in the broadest sense, not just like a radical anarchist or whatever, but you really need to kind of get the facts straight about what COVID is and how it's still impacting people, how many people are becoming effectively disabled as a result of COVID infections. Yeah. And that normalizing it is really fucked up. It's eugenicist, frankly. Yeah. (laughs) It's ableist. It's wrong. And I was just thinking, I I don't know if I want to call I don't want to, I don't know. I was thinking recently about my partner and I moved up to um, Canada. Actually, Mm -hmm. we're in Victoria, BC right now, the city that is called Victoria on Vancouver Island. Yeah. There was an anarchist book fair here, no mask requirements at this fair. And yeah, I think at other book fairs around, I don't know if around BC or just in the US in particular, masks were a requirement, like respirators were required. Yeah. It's just like a basic thing I think we need to kind of do now as leftists or anarchists is just to have, if we're going to have a public event, these types of things just need to be kind of there. Like we just have to do them because there's a lot of people who are immunocompromised or disabled that just can't show up because this is not a safe, safe, these quote words, but like literally it'll harm their bodies. (laughs) Yeah. It's like full of spikes that are shooting out of the ceiling, you know, it's not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think just like the act of community care on that level. I mean, you don't have to be an anarchist to do this, of course. This is, but I think yeah. particularly for anarchists that are supposedly about communal acts of care and mutual aid, like this is a really, really basic one, a pretty easy one. Yeah. And it's interesting how it's not you know, anarchists. There's no like I don't know if there's a global anarchist federation that has doled out some kind of guidelines thing that would never make sense. But mm-hmm. it's interesting how in every place around North America, there's like different kind of cultural temperaments or certain attitudes around certain things and particularly around COVID. It's interesting how in Canada, how maybe anarchists in Canada don't maybe care as much about it. I don't know. I, I guess I can't speak for them, but it's an interesting thing to experience the ways in which the normalization of COVID has affected different regions. And yeah. It's, it's yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of bring that up because we are still in the midst of this thing. I can get into reasons why it's still a problem, why it's still a threat to people's health, but it should be, I, I would, I don't know. I just think it's really imperative that anarchists kind of get with the program if they haven't already. Yeah. And like, I've been fairly proud of the fact that overall I've found anarchists and punks and different sort of subcultural folks and political <laughs> folks to be more on top of it than the average person or place, but not, yeah. I haven't been like blown away either, you know? Yeah. Um, and we have had a, most of the book fairs that I've been aware of or gone to or whatever this year have had some kind of masking requirement. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a like rigid requirement. Sometimes it's a like, 
hears the masks at the door and someone's going to kind of be like, you should really wear one of these, but not like kick you out without a mask. Like I shout out to the anarchist space called firestorm in Asheville, North Carolina that like uh, during the, during COVID they actually moved into a new building and, and they, part of why they picked the building as far as I can tell is that the, it used to be an auto shop. So the door is open all the way. Mm. Like one wall is open and they still have a mask requirement inside the store because they're like, well, there's still a pandemic, so you should wear a mask. This isn't complicated, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And like, okay, have you ever seen the TV show The 100? <laughs> I think I've heard of it. Okay, there's this, I've watched like, the first two or three seasons a while ago. Mm-hmm. and I. But there's this thing that I think about all the time. And it was like not a particularly important TV show to me, but there's this one thing that seemed kind of hackneyed at the time where... Basically, like almost no one can live on the earth because there was a pandemic and a lot of people live in space and then some people come back down from space. And then there's like people who have lost their minds and lost civilization who, you know, have Mm -hmm. adapted. And then there's these people who live inside a mountain and they're like, oh, we can't go outside the mountain except with, uh, you know, full suits that protect i forget the word for this like the chemical like, suits or whatever yeah, you know? like hazmat suits or something yeah yeah like that. you can't go outside without a hazmat suit and a gas mask and like right. you know and when you come back in you have to go through decontamination de- decontamination and all this stuff mm-hmm. and i remember like watching it and being like you just sort of take it for granted you're like yeah you know if there was a thing in the air that killed people or like made people disabled people would like take it seriously yeah. you know and then now I'm like, man, that was a utopian piece of fiction right there. Like, yeah. th- within the first week, someone would be like, fake news. There's nothing in the air outside. And then the whole mountain would have been destroyed. Speaking of like, yeah, no, but like pop cult, like sometimes it is. I, I watched that film Contagion a while ago. It okay. came out before COVID. Yeah. But it's like, what, a Stephen's... Stephen Soderbergh film, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It came out and it was like, what would happen if a really, really dangerous, very contagious virus just started spreading? Like, what yeah. would what, what would the agencies do? What would the CDC do? What would the you know global world yeah. governments do? Whatever. And you know, it was fair. It tried to be realistic while also being kind of dramatic. And it was a really nasty virus. Yeah. Everybody like is locked down, quarantine, blah blah blah. They make a vaccine. They do a lottery. People get it at the end, and it's over. Like that's mm-hmm. the end of the movie. Everybody gets the va- everybody gets the vaccine. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. happy to get the vaccine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, no, you know, I mean, yeah, certainly, COVID's in this weird. I feel like it's in this weird space. And I've said this before on an interview with somebody, this mm-hmm. epidemiologist. I was saying it's this weird space where it's like, it's obviously really, really bad to get it. Right, but it's also like a lot of people get it, and it doesn't seem to affect them that much. They kind of feel right. like, oh, it's kind of like the cold or kind of like a, a flu. Yeah, it isn't though. I mean, looking at the actual virus and how it affects the body, it is not like those viruses, so it's very different. Yeah, but the fact is, is that you know, percentage wise, you know, most people get it; they don't die from it. So, what's the big deal? Right. So I think it's in this weird space where it's it's a very contagious, very nasty virus, but it doesn't have the mortality rate of like Ebola or something. So people yeah. aren't going to take it seriously. So it's just it's weird. It's a weird thing, and we're you know almost four years into this thing, so people are yeah. obviously quite weary of even talking about it. Yeah. So yeah, it's hard. No, totally. And like, I mean, it's funny because it's like I also get the. I get why people are like, 
over it and have to live their lives. And I think I talked about this in a recent episode. I can't remember. I was talking to someone about it. I no longer have real conversations. I only have podcast podcast conversations. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, okay, we can't not have live music as part of our human experience of the world or whatever, yeah. right? But it, to me, it's all about like looking at these cost-benefit analyses. And by and large, with exceptions, like if someone's doing hard manual labor all day, I can see why wearing a mask is particularly hard. Or like, you know, there's like, there's there's complicating factors. But like mm-hmm. overall, it's just not a fucking big deal. Like to, to yeah. COVID is, but to wear a mask, like, yeah for i think most people in most situations mm-hmm. and i think i think the main reason people don't wear masks is because of the social uh, aspect mm-hmm. of it um because mm-hmm. they are afraid of being the only person wearing a mask and yeah i just like ask us to not act out of fear yeah i ask us to do what's right and or i i think we are asked by being alive i think that we are asked to be to do what is right, not what is like popular or whatever, right? Yeah. And and so that's yeah. what's so disappointing to me about it. And I, I mean, this is part of why everyone gets so mad at people who, because I also try not to be like, you don't really like gain a lot when you tell people like, what the fuck, what's wrong with you? You can't do that. That's yeah. not a very effective strategy, you know? And so I, yeah. I do think it's like, overall, I really appreciate a lot of the phrasing that I've seen about being like, hey, even if you stop masking, here's like a good reason to start again. And like, yeah. You know, there's no harm in just mea culping and and just starting to mask again. Absolutely, yeah, no, for sure. And I don't know. There's there's a lot of other things going on too. When you, it really is fascinating to be like you obviously want to be like you want to encourage this level of care. And and I think what's sort of hard is there is a real lack of public like good public health messaging has been mm-hmm. terrible. So it's an interesting dynamic. I, I feel like anarchists are people who are more on the ground organizing at grassroots levels, grass, at a grassroots level. You are trying to fill a void, yeah. which is the government doesn't really want to fucking deal with this shit. Yeah. They just don't want to deal with it. They have, they have learned enough and they know that they can move on more, yeah. more or less. And so they're not going to do anything about it anymore. And so you have to take care of yourself. The rich are taking care of themselves. They have all the tools. They know exactly how to run a COVID safe event. They've been doing it for a while now. And they have really good, like in the way that you would pay for security or catering at an event, they pay for COVID safety uh, coordinators. Yeah. And they're really good at it. And if they're doing that and they understand this, then we should be doing it for ourselves because we as the pores we need to take care of each other yeah take care of ourselves and and learn basic information that unfortunately a lot of people don't have and actually i and i understand that doing my podcast or doing this kind of work that i i'm able to delve into some of these subjects more closely so like i might know a little more about COVID than the average person and honestly the more i learn about it, the more i don't want to get it and the more yeah. i would encourage people to avoid reinfection yeah. More than anything. If you've had it before, you don't want to get it again. There's so many intersecting issues here. I guess I just I I just really want to emphasize community care is the most important thing right now in regards to this. Um need to really get on top of that if we haven't already. And a lot of people yeah. are. It's amazing okay. actually how many people are doing it. Like yeah. there's mask blocks, there's all kinds of people organizing around this subject, and they don't have any particular seemingly political ideology that's animating it. It's just they're doing it because it's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Totally. And one of the things you were saying about realizing like the government is abandoned or the government has moved on and, and things like that. It's one of these, at the beginning of COVID, it actually kind of challenged in some ways, it challenged a lot of my own anarchist thoughts, right? Because I try not to assume I'm right. I try not to look at a problem and say, what's the anarchist solution? I try to look at right. a problem and say, what's the solution? I have a bias mm. that lends itself towards non-state, non-capitalist solutions, but I try yeah. to earnestly look at every problem and say, what is the best solution? And so far in my life, the answer is usually non-state, anti-capitalist, anti-oppression, mm-hmm. right? And, well, and some of those things are also moral, you know, but, but at the beginning of COVID, you start being like, well, shit, someone needs to, this needs to be organized on a massive scale, right? And then mm-hmm. now what we actually saw, instead of gave me the opposite, whereas the beginning of COVID was mutual aid groups popped up everywhere. Yeah. You know, and mutual aid groups like stepped into the void of what was not being met because people were locked down. They were like not able to meet a bunch of other needs. And a lot of them mm-hmm. in the U.S. at least we had, the, you know, we got stimulus money or whatever. And it like wasn't enough for yeah. most people. And but I think that it becomes really clear that you look a year on and as soon as like COVID is over, you're like, oh, you're running some cold math about dead people in the economy or disabled yeah. people in the economy. And you mm-hmm. are deciding that getting people back to work makes the country more money, even though a bunch of people will die or become disabled as a result, you know? Yeah. And so it like, it's like one of those things to me, it just like, yeah, lays bare the reality of government, that government yes. exists to make this kind of cold calculation not take care of people. Yeah, no, I I think at the beginning, there was a lot of ambiguity. We didn't know what this would really be. So obviously, lockdowns or what we would call lockdowns were really just kind of stay at home orders or, or any sort like just just tell people like, please just avoid social gatherings for a while. And then masks came into the picture and things like this. That was implemented just because there was so ambiguity, you know, there, there was a lot of ambiguity. We didn't know everything we know now. And once the kind of that cold calculus really came in and there's a lot of other things too, but really when that came in and it was like, this is hurting the economy, this isn't going to work. You know, we have to really focus on jobs over, you know, everything else be over lives. So yeah, let's just get back to work. And I don't know, but I think it it is kind of an interesting thing though, because the kind of anti-mask thing is very much an aesthetic choice. It's not as much, a practical or rational thing. Cause like we could have jobs and all this stuff running exactly as before, but people are wearing high quality respirators. Sure. We could have all kinds of things implemented. Yeah. It would take an investment from, from a cold, like capitalist perspective. It's rational to put in air filtration. It's rational to have yeah. people wear respirators. And yet from a, I don't know what it is, but just the, the idea of actually providing public health uh, infrastructurally in that level yeah. is just not, possible at this point for some reason it's just not feasible like I, I i was thinking about the kind of origins of of like public health as it were and like john i think his name is john snow in england he kind of figured out where the cholera outbreaks were coming from and that really helped kickstart this movement to um you know kind of figure out how to provide clean water for people on a mm-hmm. massive social scale on, on the scale of a city right 
it took a long time and a lot of deaths for finally something to change. And now we just take for granted that when you turn on a faucet in most places around, say, North America, you're going to find you're going to have clean water. Like yeah. it's pretty not always the case, certainly, but, you know, it's kind of taken for granted that that's a, almost like a right that we have. But clean air is not really entered into that same that that level uh, of a feeling and a, like an entitlement that we have as human yeah. beings for a quality of life issue. Like this is important. So I don't know. It's it's interesting to witness how this has been playing out, and and also as an as sort of an anarchist or whatever, thinking about it from that level of like, if we want to move away from states and governments, how would an anarchist society deal with this issue? Right. How would non-status anti-status deal with this and it's interesting i don't know yet i haven't really figured that out and and i, I was kind of thinking because you do like a history podcast as well and i'm wondering mm -hmm. if from <laughs> if there was anything you came across like as you know kind of radical leftist movements that were like how do we apply the values of public health and healthcare from kind of a maybe a communal collectivist sense that does not rely on the institution of states and bureaucracies. Like I'm, yeah. I don't know. I, I I wonder about this because we're trying to just fill the gap of what the state isn't doing. Right. It's almost reactionary. Right. Right. Uh, what would it look like to be proactive in that sense? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't. Well, I have an answer to that. I just think it's interesting. Okay. No, that's an interesting. From a history point of view, there's a piece that I read right near the beginning of the pandemic that I haven't read in a while and I don't remember as well. Uh, this Italian anarchist Malatesta wrote a piece. Mm -hmm called like something like anarchists in the cholera outbreak. And it was about mm. anarchist public health responses to a uh, late 19th century health crisis. Mm. But I also know that anarchists have been doing a ton of stuff with public health since the beginning. Um, I think that like, I mean, you can look at like, it's anarchists who, at least in the U S pushed birth control and pushed information mm. about sexually transmitted diseases and like sexual health. Um, and it was like, people were like, oh yes, early feminists. I'm like, yeah, they were early feminist anarchists. I mean, there's some exceptions to that. And then of course you have like bad examples where like Margaret Sanger, who um, founded Planned Parenthood mm. was like a complicated figure <laughs> who embraced a non-racialized eugenics. And that is mm. bad. Um, yeah. But it is spun to mean that she was a different, that she believed in something different than what she actually believed. Mm -hmm. And, but it's still bad. And she started yeah. off an anarchist. She actually, by the time she was like really doing the eugenics stuff, because a lot of like, a lot of eugenics, you kind of need the state for, right? Especially like the evilest, the evilest parts of it are like, who gets to decide who has babies or whatever, right? And all that shit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, Margaret Sanger was an anarchist when she first started doing a lot of the birth control stuff. Emma Goldman got arrested a ton of times. The person who mm -hmm. spent the longest in jail in U.S. history for advocating birth control was this guy. I just did an episode about this. I don't normally have all these facts in front of me. It was this guy named Ben Reitman who was mostly an anarchist. He like he spent most of his life fucking around with the anarchist scene. But the anarchist scene didn't like him because he um, was super horny and he kept cheating on Emma Goldman, which is impressive because they were in an uh, open relationship. Um, I remember. Yeah, okay. but he still managed to sort of piss her off with how many people he slept with, even though they yeah. it was like supposedly okay. He spent <laughs> the longest of anyone in history, uh, in U.S. history, in jail for advocating birth control. Um, yeah. And he was also a, he put him, he was a hobo doctor. He was a doctor who went to medical school, became a physician, specifically so that he could treat STIs 
in the 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 poorer classes and people mm-hmm. who didn't have access to to public health and so a lot as far as i can tell i see this this thing this pattern happen a lot where things come from the bottom up and then the top is like, oh, okay, cool, we got that. And you can see this yeah. benevolently where you're like, oh, it comes from the bottom up and then the state comes in and takes charge and everything's okay. Mm-hmm. And and there's some advantages that have come up through that. But overall, I think it is to the detriment of these systems. And I think that, I don't know, I guess I'm like, I think that decentralized networks that have some forms of centralized uh, information sharing are very capable of doing these sorts of things. Um, also, Sorry, I'll stop spitting out anarchists in a minute. But the okay. the um, the legalization of abortion, the first Western European country, um, Soviet Russia was the first country to legalize. I could be wrong about this. Was one of the first countries, if not the first country, to legalize abortion um, mm. in in Europe. But mm-hmm. then Stalin was like, "Just kidding, you must make babies," because <laughs> oh, okay. he's a bastard. Uh, uh-huh. Then Federica Montsaini, the woman minister of health of, in revolutionary Spain, who was an anarchist, um, which is really complicated. And there was a lot of arguing at the time about whether Federica Montsaini and some of her peers should have joined the coalition government. She legalized abortion. Mm. And so it's like funny. So even the state idea of public health came from an anarchist who was part of the state. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I, I think that it's this thing where when we're thrust into these big crises, like a pandemic, we start to really, we do reevaluate our, maybe our yeah kind of ideological stances a little bit. Like, cause for me, Mike, you know, I think this is something we talked about when you were on my podcast, like three years ago or whatever, something about like, it's not our position to tell people how to do things like if it's another country and other people they do they're going to figure out how to solve their problems in their own way right and you know i think a lot of revolutionary movements do lead to certain types of obviously state kind of action or state uh, it's directed towards the state or the state itself kind of responds to it in a way that is actually beneficial to the people but that's not because the state is good it's just under enormous amounts of pressure it's just right it's complicated i don't think it's one thing and and i right. think that like it's a good thing that the government was able to mass pro- or help mass produce vaccines but i also think it was really fucked up that it was then decided that that was the end of the pandemic because everybody was vaccinated it's kind right. of this it's this thing it's not one thing it's very complicated but I do think overwhelmingly, absolutely, if public health is being administered on this sort of ground level where the feedback between the actual public and these sort of people administering public health, if that feedback loop is shorter where it's like you're able to actually hear what people are saying and you can actually see what's going on on the ground, there's an actual connection and it's done democratically and collectively, right. then you actually can administer public health in a way that is going to help people right? and not being imposed on people. Right. So, yeah, it, it's I think there's been uh, for me a lot of questions and lessons learned from this pandemic up to this point. So and also I just I don't know, I just throw this in there. They're not necessarily anarchists, but like the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, you know, they were very much about healthcare and administering healthcare on a community level. Totally. And did forward a lot of things that even today, like I think it was something like the Young Lords were really pushing for patients having access to their own that the doctors had to explain to them yeah. what, is that right? Yeah, they, they, um, they introduced the patient's bill of health that has since been that's what it is. like internationally. Yeah. Right. 
So, you know, these, and they were radical, you know, they took over hospitals, they occupied, yeah. all, you know, they did a lot. So yeah. anyway, I just, I think in regards to the pandemic right now, whatever major breakthroughs that we're going to have in regards to dealing with the cleaning the air or, you know, actually making sure that people have access to resources and, and information that's going to have to come from the ground level yeah, and pressure from the ground level because it ain't good right now. It really isn't. Yeah. No, and and that yeah, I really like that. I think that's a really good point. And when I think about like the Young Lords are the perfect example of this. Um, and they, you know, yeah, they were they were Marxist Leninists, and but they were doing something from the bottom up and forced the city of New York City to take action. Like for example, in the neighborhood that they they lived in they moved all over the place but they first started and i want to say the upper east side in a puerto rican neighborhood in manhattan Mm -hmm. and no trash was coming no trash pickup was happening there partly because of some racism of some white labor unions and the trash union Mm -hmm. and partly Mm -hmm. due to just like systemic poverty and other forms of racism it wasn't all just the trash workers problem fault but you know fuck them (laughs) they just started dragging trash in the middle of the street and setting it on fire and they did it in the parts of their neighborhood that rich people have to drive through they did it in mm. the through fairs and it worked. Trash pickup became a major issue in the next uh, mayoral election. And then trash pickup, like they like revolutionized how trash is picked up in New York city. And it was this major health issue. And then the other things that they would do is they would go door to door to do tuberculosis screenings. And they would also like, they're so fucking cool. Um, at one point they like hijacked, a x-ray van that was going through these neighborhoods to like x-ray people for tuberculosis, but wasn't going to poor neighborhoods of color. And there's like some arguments about whether that was like because of what time the schedule was and didn't work for people's jobs, or if it was a straight up, like now we're just hanging out in the white neighborhoods. But what happened was the x-ray technicians, they were like sick. We don't give a shit. We just want to fucking help stop TB. And that's what's so interesting to me about like government workers versus like uh, non-government workers. It's like, the people doing this shit, whether it's for the government or not, they just want to get the shit done. They don't care which system is doing it. Like the x-ray technicians were like, sick, fuck yeah, we're still getting paid. Like, uh, it's a little weird that you came in with guns, but whatever, it was necessary. You take us up there. And then they like started and they ended up with a fucking x-ray van parked outside the young Lord's headquarters, like several days a week paid for by the hospital. And like, and so it, I got really worked up. Yeah, no, it's cool though. But I, I think that like like these questions about anarchist public health, one of the things that's so interesting to me is that it's like systems allow things to happen, but people who are who do it. And so like like often people will ask, be like, well, how will an anarchist society produce insulin or whatever? And like, well, part of the answer is I don't know how we make insulin now, but that's probably how we'll make it then too, right? Yeah, yeah, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like anarchist public health can look in some ways really similar in terms of like, well, we'll have people who know a lot about public health directing yeah. these things, you know, because it's, it's not the government that regulates things. It is people who design the systems of regulation and like anything that people can do, we are people. And also I'm not trying to disclude those people from my society. And I just want it to happen in a system that is actually anti-oppressive, that is like uh, horizontal, that is anti-capitalist, you know, that is all of these things. And so, yeah, so what if instead of we build shit from the bottom up and the government swoops in and then kind of makes it shitty and watered down, we build things from the bottom up and then keep building and just keep those buildings that we make horizontal and keep them like, 
Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Totally worked up. Uh, no, you're good. No, you're right though. That's exactly it. Like there are at every stage of the way, like I think health, uh, sorry, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm also kind of trying to think of what, I just feel like health and healthcare is actually a, is a core and central component of any sort of revolutionary movement because it is so integral to everyone obviously our health and well-being is like such an integral part of everyone's lives so like yeah how we treat disabled people how we treat people of all age groups how access to care is affect you know people's sort of the demographic that they exist in the the racial system that we have it affects how people have access to certain types of care i mean all of this is so it intersects with so many things so i i think the pandemic has highlighted a, a lot of this, and I think it's been a very upsetting and difficult time. And I think people kind of need to—they've tuned out. They need to kind of tune back in. And I yeah. get why they tuned out, but they just need right. to try to tune it, in, tune in a bit because it's gonna. I'm sorry, it sounds bleak, and this is kind of my thing. It's it's like it's gonna get worse unless we make it better. Yeah, and I think there's an assumption it somehow got better, and it really hasn't. And again, this is just because I I am I mean I am doing this sort of collaborative series right now, but also I've just learned as much as I can about how COVID's affecting the body, and it's a nasty virus. It's causing really wild complications in people's bodies. It is a very strange thing. Yeah. So, you know, it's not enough to just tell you as an individual, please do this thing or please do that. We need actual systems of care that really accommodate everybody yeah so yeah it's 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 it to me it's it is and i know we were kind of discussing how this you know what my podcast really addresses is is a lot of it's around climate and the implications of climate change how we deal with covid is indicative of how we're dealing with yeah it's like a russian doll you know nested within itself it's like this is how we're dealing with this. Well, this is how we're dealing with the ecological crisis and the climate crisis as well. Yeah. How we adapt to the changes that are coming from this pandemic is how we are choosing or not choosing to deal with the changes that are coming from a rapidly changing climate system. So this is all related. Yeah. And I think, again, as radical leftists, you got to catch up with that and kind of recognize that part of it. Yeah. In my opinion. No, that makes sense. There's kind of a, um, one of the things that I do, I do a lot of like crafting as my main way to decompress and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Right. And one of the things that I've like been learning as I get older is like a, a, a random maxim. That's a cliche, which is how you do one thing is how you do everything. Mm. And it, it's not literally true, but I think about it when I want to cut corners. I think about it when I like, I finished, uh, you know, I'm making my raised beds and I'm like, oh, I'm going to not sand that corner. It doesn't really matter. I'm not going to see that part. Right. You know? Right. And, but those all build up and, and more the, by learning the discipline of handling things and taking things seriously, it puts me in the position for the parts that do matter to not cut corners, to go at things like systematically to uh, make sure I do things right. And, I kind of like this this presentation of like how we handle COVID is how we handle climate change. Mm. You know, they're not the same problem. They're related. They're part of the uh, interwoven crises we are facing. And so we shouldn't freak out about either because that does, literally doesn't do us any good. 
But we should yeah. probably be more alarmed than overall we are about both of these things. And and looking soberly at the problem and at what solutions are and running cost-benefit analyses, but not cost-benefit analyses for what saves the economy, but what cost-benefit mm-hmm. analyses feed people. And to be fair, the economy is part of what feeds people, but there's other methods of feeding people, which the government Absolutely. knows. And that's part of why they're like, shit, we got to make sure that we stay feeding people because otherwise people are going to figure out communism. <laughs> yeah. But... No, I, I like this this framework. I like this idea that um, we should, you know, I mean, it's like a thing that I think I've talked about before on this show where I'm like, well, we should just be installing better HVAC systems. And even like if you want to have like, like there's certain things that are not conducive to masking, right? Um, yep. An in, inside yeah, yeah. restaurant is not conducive to masking. And, and mm-hmm. personally, I just kind of avoid them because it's not a big part of my life. I live in the middle of nowhere and I make all my own food. Mm-hmm. But like, mm-hmm. That's me, and I can't get mad at other people for making different decisions around that. But, mm-hmm. well, I mean, there's certain decisions I can get mad at people about, but whatever. Right, right. But at the very least, you can look at being like, okay, we have a restaurant. How are we going to build it for, for HVAC? How are we going to build it for you know cycling the air as much as possible, for keeping windows open, for patio service, for for whatever? And this is still within a very, like, not changing that much about society framework. I would prefer greatly to consider larger frameworks. But then again, a lot of things that we talk about within larger frameworks, like like when I imagine how I think society would work is that personally, I'd be like, well, a lot of food is like people cook at home and eat with their family and friends and stuff. But also you can just go to the big free restaurant that's kind of a probably a food line and they put food on your plate and then you eat it and it's great and you hang out with everyone. And I'm like, well, how the fuck do you do that in a COVID world? And it's it's hard to know. And it it changes what is possible and what is safe and what is good that we live in this different world. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm done. My, this no, you rant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I think, you know, I, I, while I do admittedly succumb to sort of bleak and sad and depressed attitudes around mm-hmm. a lot of things, I actually think what you said there is interesting. Cause it's actually, you know, people look at it like it is a, um, what do they call it? A foreclosing of possibilities, right? And it okay. is on some level. Yeah. You are foreclosing the possibility of, like, for instance, I miss going to just coffee shops and chilling out and drinking coffee and working on my computer or reading or whatever and hanging yeah. out with people. And there's this whole like social aspect to that particular thing. But it is also a business where people are probably getting paid too little and being treated like shit by entitled customers. And, you know, I've worked in the coffee business long enough that I know exactly what that's like. That said, Oh, that, that is very much related to the restaurant business and all these other types of businesses and industries that people exist in where they're exploited regularly. And people don't really, if they don't have to deal with that type of labor and do that themselves, they often don't really care. And so they just want that experience again, right? They just want to go back to being served again in a restaurant. That's so cool. If you, of course, have a more, I mean anti-capitalist liberatory attitude, you'd be like, well, how do we have that experience without it being so fucking shitty for a certain yeah, group of people? Totally. Right? And how do we also make it so that it's COVID safe? Because so that people don't catch awful plagues yeah. sitting around and having fun together and eating, you know, and drinking yeah. coffee or wine or whatever. It's like, yeah. how can we imagine the restaurant coffee shop experience without it being through this sort of, as it being a sort of capitalist enterprise? Yeah. And that's, I think through crisis or through this sort of thing of, of a pandemic, we can reimagine it in a way that is safer and better for everybody that isn't exploiting everyone or certain groups of people. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
No, absolutely. I, I don't know. I agree. <laughs> like, no, I, no, I think yeah. like you just said something that kind of brought up something for me. Cause I, I have this tendency and it comes through in the podcast that I do a lot, which is, I am not a particularly optimistic person. Mm-hmm. And so I can tend to fall into a, well, I mean, there's certain things I'm just always going to have this attitude about, but you know, I think I, <laughs> my partner's laughing when I said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I have the tendency, but I think I can kind of, if, if it does foreclose possibilities and sort of radical action and things that can be done right now and can alleviate some of the suffering and, and misery that I and others are experiencing if we kind of just, I don't know. It, it's, it, I, I don't know. I guess I, I just appreciated what you said because it just kind of opened a little door in my head where yeah. I kind of forgot like, oh yeah, like actually I don't have to be that way all the time. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I think it's really funny that I took the name Killjoy and now I'm like basically a professional optimist. I mean, I, I want to be like a, a realist. Yeah. yeah. But I'm like, yeah. well, like, I don't know. I mean, one of the things I learned from cognitive behavioral therapy is they're like, well, what's the worst that could happen? And you're like, well, I could die. And you're like, okay, what then? And you're like, well, then nothing. And you're like, okay, yeah. what, do you, what do you want? Like, you know, and it's kind of like, all right, well, like all this really terrible stuff is happening. That's absolutely true. We need to take that seriously. But like, well, we were all going to die anyway. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's even something about, I think that I, what I've learned from doing my work is that, you know, I, I, I do get these responses from people that say like, I really appreciate that you're saying the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not looking away from it. You're just talking about it. There's actually a comfort in it. Yeah. Because I think people feel kind of, I know those words overused, but gaslit, or there's sort of this normalization yeah. of that just feels like people aren't quite like there's a glazed look in their eye when you bring up certain subjects and it kind of bother, you know, it's like, yeah. um, it's a difficult thing. And I guess I've always been one to want to talk about those types of subjects and, and yeah, death, if death is the worst possible thing that can happen, then, you know, what else you know then what right I mean, yeah what else you got like yeah exactly <laughs> so but i mean frankly you know i mean you know some of the subjects i deal with in a broad sense you know is about extinction and is about like yeah. the implications of climate change and that is a heavy thing and i yeah i do think that it weighs on the minds of and hearts of people and so totally. i don't know if there's an there's not answers to how to like there's no therapy that'll fix that right yeah. there's no like can't go to a therapist to like fix this problem it's just it is what it is and so then what um and that's that's i don't have an answer but at least i can talk about it yeah absolutely Um, yeah well uh we are we are running out of time but i'm wondering if there's anything that i i should have asked you on this particular topic uh and then if not or after that i'm wondering how people can find your work to engage with it yeah, well, I mean, I'm glad we could talk about COVID and it did kind of open some things up for me. So thank you for the discussion. I don't know. I guess there's a lot to say. I I guess I would ask people, if you haven't been masking, start masking again. We are in a wave. Learn more about that. It's an inch, It's actually quite fascinating. So just do that. That would be cool. Be good for your own health and the benefit of others. There's a lot to say. I don't know. I, I guess I guess we could have talked more about some other aspects of my work, but this is fine because I've been obsessively learning about COVID. So uh, that's probably <laughs> mine more than anything. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I guess people can learn more about my 
podcast. I have my website, lastborninthewilderness.com. Um, everything is there. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. You can support my work on Patreon, all that stuff. I have that. I mentioned I, I'm doing a collaborative series with his name is Joshua Probanic from Public Herald. He's a journalist and filmmaker. And we're doing a collaborative series on long COVID specifically. So that should be, we haven't quite figured out exactly how that's going to play out, but we will have that out in the coming weeks or months Okay, starting to release those episodes. So I would just ask people to look out for that. Hell yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. And I have a feeling, yeah, there's so much more that even was on our list of things we were going to talk about. So I have a feeling <laughs> I'm going to try and drag you back pretty soon. Okay, good. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then uh, take public health seriously. It shouldn't have to be on us, but it kind of always does because everything is always on us because we're all actually equals in this society that we all collectively build. Um, So think about that, I guess. And listen to Less Born in the Wilderness. And if you want to support this podcast in particular, you can support it by telling people about it. You can can tell machines about it. Just go to a um, computer and write on it with a Sharpie and say, like, I like Strangers in the Tangled Wilderness. And then whoever's computer it is, uh, hopefully it doesn't run as fast as you. And then um, after that, you can also support us financially by supporting us on Patreon, uh, by supporting our publisher, Strangers in the Tangled Wilderness, whose province of name you now know um because i was cutting up holy books like a jerk uh <laughs> and you can support us on patreon and it's patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness if you support us at ten dollars or more a month we send you a zine every month um but if you support us at like one dollar a month you're still helping this podcast have a transcript and you're helping this podcast uh be edited those are the, those are the people who get paid currently and one day it'll pay the hosts and that'll be sweet because i like eating food but I'm not trying to pressure you about that. Also, if you don't have any money, don't give it to us. Just fucking spend it on your own food. Like, whatever. Um, From each according to ability to each according to need. It is a slogan that predates Marx, so don't worry. Um, But now I don't remember who said it off the top of my head. In particular, I would like to thank a list of people. I would like to thank Eric and Percival Buck Jacob, Catgut, Marm, Carson, Lord Harkin, Trickster, Princess Miranda, Ben Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Janice and Odell, Allie, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, SJ, Paige, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Starro, Jennifer, Kirk, Chris, Micaiah, and as always, Hoss the dog, who's a very good dog. I'm not going to tell you where Hoss lives, but I've met Hoss. Hoss is great. Okay. I hope everyone is doing as well as you can, despite the fact that everything's ending.